Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5 will be in verses 12 through 15 today. I feel like I, I titled an earlier text from 1 Thessalonians something similar to this. I don't remember the exact title, but similar things come out, but in a different way now. As Paul is reaching the conclusion of this first letter to the church in Thessalonica. And so I'm titling this section, verses 12 through 15 of chapter 5, Love and Peace in the Church. Love and Peace in the Church. I just want to point out um, some things that Paul has said a little earlier, but not too much earlier, in the same letter. Uh, And so maybe you'll, you'll see how some themes string together as we arrive here today. First of all, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, he had said, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Then he, uh, he had mentioned, he discussed their sanctification uh, in terms of, of sexual holiness. Then he said, verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So there already, Paul said, the basic idea of brotherly love within the Lord, uh, it's not like I need to teach that to you as if it's a foreign idea, foreign concept. If you belong to God, he has taught you to love one another. But then he made this specific application. This is uh, That should happen in the context of living a quiet life, minding your own affairs, working with your own hands. Um, and that um, is not only about treating the brothers rightly, but also walking properly before outsiders as well. Then he had gone into um, this discussion of the coming of the Lord. First of all, from the vantage point of thinking about believers who had died and not grieving for them as others grieve who have no hope. And then talking about the sudden day of the Lord, uh, that it should be a terror to the world, but it should not be a terror to believers Um, because we are not of the night or of the darkness. We are sons of the light. So we should be prepared for the coming day and eager for it. But at the end of that section, verse 11 of chapter 5, he said, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Um, So there, particularly, of course, he's saying, encourage each other, build each other up in light of the truth about Christ coming back, in light of our our steadfast hope in the return of the Lord. But it also makes a good segue into this next section as he's thinking about them encouraging each other, edifying each other. Um, G.K. Beale says, Paul again picks up on saints living quietly before the unbelieving world by underscoring that this begins with them living peaceably with one another. Uh, Chapter 5, verses 12 through 22, that's larger than our text today. But this last section shows the various ways in which peace is expressed within the covenant community. 
um, Robert Cara mentions about the text we're about to read, that there's two sections to it. He says, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13, and then 5, 14-15, are two groups of commands. Both begin in a similar manner. We ask you, brothers, verse 12. We encourage you, brothers, verse 14. Both relate explicitly to the ways that church members interact with each other, except for the very end of, of chapter 5, verse 15, where he also mentions the outside world again. So the big idea we're coming into here in our text is that love and peace, love and peace require all Christians to bless their shepherds and each other. Love and peace require all Christians to bless their shepherds and each other. So let's read uh, verses 12 through 15 here of chapter 5. And there's a couple places I'll pause and give you an alternate translation from the Legacy Standard or the NASB uh, Bibles. Verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect, or more literally, like the Legacy Standard Bible has it, to know those who labor among you and are over you or lead you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, or better translation, we'll talk about it, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. That is, not just to believers, one another, but to everyone. Or the LSB has, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. So, big idea. Love and peace require all Christians to bless their shepherds and each other. You can see in your handout there, I've divided this up into two points and then subpoints under that. The first big point is verse 12 through the beginning of verse 13. Paul says to gratefully know and lovingly esteem your shepherds. Now, let me just say right now, this is, you know, this is not something I would preach unless it was the next text here. (laughs) Because I'm I'm the shepherd right now. But remember, the Lord will bring future shepherds our way, too. So we should be thinking of this also, not just about me, but about any shepherd, present or future. And we should think about what Paul is, is saying here carefully. And it's a little awkward for me to say, hey, you should appreciate me. This is the next text, though, so what can I do? Uh, So I'll try to just stick with what the text says and be biblical about it. And and, uh, it's the word of the Lord, thankfully, not just my word. So gratefully know and lovingly esteem your shepherds. Um, It may not be immediately obvious when you read this in English, uh, though some English grammar nerds might pick up on it, but uh, in Greek it's very clear. He's talking about one group of people here. Uh, He describes them in three different ways with uh, three relative clauses, they're called. But Paul is describing the activities of a single group or an office, as Robert Carr says, not three different groups of people. Gratefully know, loving esteem, this one group of people, but he describes their work in three different ways, which we'll get into. 
G.K. Beale says, uh, where it says in our ESV, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you, etc. Um, and the NIV also has respect there. But the NASB has appreciate. And so G.K. Beale says, this is closer to the Greek oida, the Greek word, which ordinarily means no. And here it's best construed as take cognizance of, with a view to respecting and appreciating. Uh, I'll, I'll simplify that. Uh, the word is know them with the idea of appreciation. Know them with the idea of appreciation. He says, Buell says, the people to be appreciated are those who have been placed in leadership to watch over the flock, proistemi, literally standing before or in front of, in the sense of rank, those over you, Paul says. So the point is, Paul's referring here to those with the office of elder, overseer, or shepherd. Uh, we've also called them bishops sometimes, pastors sometimes. That's who he's talking about. And he says, uh, know them, uh, with this, in the sense of appreciation, or the ESV says respect. Know them, and then uh, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. He's already, in verse 12, he, he's described that work in three ways. They labor among you, they are over you in the Lord, and they admonish you. 1 Timothy 5.17 is a good example where the same word for, for um, where translated here, they are over you in the Lord, that same word comes out in 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well, there's the word, those who rule um, well, let them be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 20 quick as well. Acts chapter 20. As we're thinking about, I'm, I'm just trying to show you why it's uh, obvious from the scriptures that we're talking here about elders. Um, when Paul gave his farewell address to the elders over the Ephesian church, in Acts chapter 20, Paul sets himself forth as a model for what their ministry should be. He says, you remember how I ministered among the flock when I was among you. And then he goes into detail on that. And he's setting himself forth as a model of what their eldership should be. Um, in the midst of that, you'll see these same concepts coming out as Paul describes his own shepherding ministry. These concepts of uh, those who labor among you are over you in the Lord and, and admonish you. Uh, so, Acts 20, verse 17. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now jump down to verse 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, 
to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish, there's our word from 1 Thessalonians, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Likewise, uh, elsewhere, Paul also models what a minister of the gospel should be. And, and he models that by, again, saying he admonishes the saints and labors intensely among them. Colossians 1, um, verse 28, him, uh, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone. That's the same word as admonish in 1 Thessalonians 5. Warning or admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil... That's the same word translated labor in 1 Thessalonians 5.12. For this I labor hard, or I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Uh, so back to our, our sermon text, 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul says, esteem them very highly in love. Why? Because of their work. Understanding something about the task they've been given to do. And that's the point, that's the reason, the basis for esteeming them very highly in love. It's interesting, Gene Green, in his commentary, says, um, he's thinking about the culture of the day, in contrast. And he's saying, what legitimized this leadership was not their status or social rank, as was commonly, commonly the case in both Greek and Roman society, but the labor they undertook among the members of the congregation, as the second part of the verse explains. So, Mr. Green is just saying people in Thessalonica would have been used to esteeming people mostly because of their status, their their social standing. <laughs> um, but here Paul says, esteem them because of what they do, because of their work. Now, why do this? Um, first of all, well, he, he says... Uh, this is because of their work, so let's break down their work as he describes it. First of all, do this because of their hard work among you. Paul calls the elders those who labor among you. Again, Gene Green, he says, The verb has to do with engaging in difficult or exhausting labor, the same as, as the noun form of the word in chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul talks about the Thessalonians' labor of love. Over and over again, it designates ministerial labors, but talking about it as a hard job, hard work. Let me run through a few examples where this word for labor shows up in ministerial context in the New Testament. Um, one that's striking to me is Luke 5, Luke chapter 5, where Jesus tells Simon Peter and his companions um, to throw out the net now, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. They're in their boats on the Lake of Galilee. Jesus tells them to go put their nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled. There's the word. We worked hard all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And then, of course, you probably know the story. 
This time, when Jesus said, do it again, and they did it again, this time they got a catch too big for them. And it's on this occasion that Simon Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He falls down on Jesus' knees. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. There's the idea for, for labor. We toiled all night and took nothing. But we'll do it again at your word, Lord. First Corinthians 15, same word is used where Paul says, Paul is not um, speaking against his fellow apostles at all, but he says, um, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked, there's the word, I worked, labored harder than any of them, any of the apostles, even though I'm the least of the apostles, he had just said. I worked harder than any of the apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So again, connecting work with that idea of preaching the word of God and the gospel. 1 Corinthians 16 is really interesting. I want you to turn there. 1 Corinthians 16, starting in verse 15. First Corinthians sixteen fifteen. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. That's the province where they were there in Corinth. And that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. There's a form of the same word for labor, for hard work. To every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition. That's another word for knowing them. Uh, give recognition to such people. Such people who are laborers in the gospel. Galatians 4, verse 11, Paul says he's afraid that he may have labored over the Galatians in vain. There's the word again. I may have labored over you in vain, because now you're listening to the Judaizers. The false teachers. First Timothy 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor. There's the word again. Those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Second Timothy 2, Paul tells Timothy, <clears throat> uh, in the context of being a man of God, a minister of the gospel, he encourages him by saying, it is the hard-working farmer. There's the word again. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. He says that in the midst of various metaphors, various word pictures, he says, you should be like a soldier of Jesus Christ uh, who focuses on his job as a soldier. You should be like an athlete who competes according to the rules. And you should be like a hard-working farmer. Uh, who then can get the first share of the crops. All right, so, um, to do this, do what? Gratefully know and lovingly esteem your shepherds. Why? Number one, because of their hard work among you. Number two, as Paul describes their, their work, because of their responsible position over you. Their responsible position over you. Again, like, like we mentioned, that word for being over the Thessalonians is used elsewhere of, of rule. 
Um, it's used in those texts about elders and deacons who rule their own households well, as well. That sort of a word. But they are over you in the Lord. As Beale points out, that means this is the ground of their authority. It's not that they're so special, but in the Lord, they're over you. Church leaders, Beale says, are not autonomous sovereigns, but represent Jesus' authority. They are commissioned by Christ to carry out their oversight of the flock according to his will and not their own. That's certainly a, a, um, a heavy responsibility. But uh, I also want to point out this word used for them being over the Thessalonians. Yes, it means that they are in some responsible position of authority. It also has a connotation, though, sometimes in the, New, in the New Testament, secondarily, of how they provide for those under them. Um, they actually care about those and support those under their influence. The word probably got that connotation partially because even in the, even in the pagan world of the day, um, say political leaders, they were supposed to also be benefactors uh, of the community, those who are providing um, good things for those under their rule. So there's that connotation of it, too, that um, uh, it, it's authority, yes. It's also, secondarily, provision for people. Now, third, do this, uh, have this attitude towards your shepherds because of their pointed instruction to you. He says they admonish you in the Lord. Get back to First Thessalonians here in my Bible. There we are. Admonishing has the idea of appointed instruction. It's that word. How many have heard of that? This word that someone made up from the Greek and just put it in English. Um, Neuthetic counseling. Neuthetic counseling. Yes. Uh, that, that's what that's from this word, nuthateo. Um, so, G.K. Beale says Paul adds in verse uh, chapter five, verse twelve, that their work also includes admonishing nuthateo people. The word refers not merely to teaching, but to instruction aimed at changing one's moral disposition, with respect to both enlightening and warning the ignorant about potential problems ahead, and rebuking those already entangled in wrongdoing. Uh, and he mentions uh, the other places this word shows up in the Thessalonian letters focus on rebuke to some extent of those involved in sin. Uh, on the other hand, Jeff Wyma points out, for Paul, admonition ne never came from a judgmental or vindictive spirit. It's done out of genuine concern and love for others. And it's... Uh, it's admonition which is designed to correct while not provoking or embittering. For instance, 1 Corinthians 4.14, Paul says, I'm writing uh, to admonish you as my dear children, rather than just being severe with them for severity's sake. Uh, and later, 2 Thessalonians, Paul will tell the Thessalonians when they have to um, deal with members who are not working, who are disobeying Paul's letter, etc., in that way. He says, don't look on them as an enemy, but admonish them as a brother. So ad admonishing uh, has that connotation of being pointed, 
But in the New Testament, we admonish people because we actually care about them, too. It's not just um, ruling harshly over people because we can. So that's the first point of the text. Uh, Big idea is love and peace require all Christians to bless their shepherds and each other. First point was gratefully know and lovingly esteem your shepherds. And Paul says do this in love and because of, of because of their work, for their work's sake. And he described what their work is. Now, number two, that flows into a focus for all of us on each other in the congregation. Peace within the congregation as a whole. So number two, maintain wholesome peace among yourselves. You see, the... Uh, the thing that ties the first command, uh, uh, the first section to the second section of this text is the end of verse 13, where he says, be at peace among yourselves. Um, and what does it mean to be at peace, or to live in peace? The idea is not just the absence of discord, not just the absence of fighting. <laughs> um, the peace is is not just absence of of fighting but it's also maintaining harmony between persons having a good relationship that's living at peace with each other again mr beale he says at the end of chapter 5 verse 13 paul abruptly says that we are to live in peace with each other the command however is not a sudden unconnected thought he says Peace will result when love increases among those in the church, especially between the shepherds and the congregational flock. On the other hand, animosity grows when dissension festers. So, yes, I think there is a tie. It's said at, this is said at the end of the section about the shepherds, but it's also flowing into now you have a job not just to your shepherds, but to each other. So uh, we need... Uh, again, uh, number two, we need to maintain wholesome peace among yourselves. Now, I worded it that way to reflect the text. It's not just peace at any cost. It's not peace that, that ignores problems. It's a wholesome, healthy peace that actually works on problems. We'll see this because as we break this peace down and what he says next, he says we are to admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, Assist the weak, suffer long, or be patient with everyone, and shun retaliation while pursuing everyone's benefit. First of all, again, the ESV says here in the beginning of verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. I'm sorry, that's a bad translation. Every good translation has bad bad spots in it that aren't the best. (laughs) This is no exception. Um, one commentator says, contrary to some English translations, like the NIV, like the ESV, and commentators, idle or lazy is not a good translation of this word, since the word never meant anything like that in the ancient world, where it was used fairly abundantly. That is, this word isn't unknown. We know what it meant. The word uh, is, is like the opposite of, the negation of a word meaning ordered, what is prescribed. It's the opposite of that. It typically meant not remaining in one's place, out of order, undisciplined. It could refer to one who breaks a commitment or to the disorders of life in general. Uh, a better translation, he says, would be disorderly or disruptive. 
uh, or unruly. But uh, disorderly disruptive is the idea. Uh, it's tempting for some to translate this idle because later on in Second Thessalonians it shows up in the context of uh, people being disorderly by being idle. Second Thessalonians 3, people were, were being disorderly and not walking according to the commands they'd received from Paul uh, from their church leaders. How are they doing that? Well, by not working, but also by being busy about stuff they shouldn't be, by being busybodies. But the word itself here doesn't mean idle. It means unruly or disorderly or disruptive. For example, commentator says again, the word refers to military officers who neglect their duty or to an army in disarray and out of its ranks, as well as to undisciplined or insubordinate soldiers. Likewise, one ancient author uses the word to refer to the Roman authorities who have the right to expel from the Roman Senate one whose life is licentious and disorderly. The word can also describe a disorderly crowd or a society that does not live by laws and rules in contrast to those societies that observe order and common law. In this regard, the word can even refer to one who disturbs public order or shirks an obligation owed to the state or city. All right, so... Paul is saying, admonish those who are out of order in the church. Now, he didn't say, slap them down, <laughs> uh, be harsh with those who are uh, out, out of place, not paying attention to what their duty is, things like that, uh, not paying due attention to the word of God, how it's commanded us to live in church life. But he says, admonish them. Now, hold on a minute. We just heard this word, right? Admonish. Isn't it the job of the overseers, the elders, to admonish those in the church? Doesn't that let the rest of us off the hook? The rest of you, I should say. <clears throat> no. Um, yeah, so, let me back up. Yes, it is the job of the elders to, to admonish those they see who are disruptive in the church, certainly. But they can't do it all by themselves. Elders can't. So, and they shouldn't have to do it all by themselves. They have a special authority and responsibility to admonish, but all the brethren in the church also have the responsibility to admonish one another. It's part of being a church member, member of the body of Christ. Each part of the body interacts with every other part of the body, right? Um, and not just in admonishing, we'll see in all the other ways Paul lists next. <clears throat> But, uh, for instance, Romans 15, verse 14, when Paul writes to the church at Rome, he clarifies that he's um, not writing the, this epistle to the Romans because he thinks they're unable to instruct each other. But there he uses the same word of what they're able to do just as being Christians, church members. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. That you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, because you're in Christ, and able to instruct, it's the same word as admonish, able to admonish one another. Um, he goes on to say, on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus, etc. He has a special role as apostle, that's why he's writing, but he knows at the same time, they are able to instruct each other. 
he has a high regard for them in their role simply as, as Christian believers. Likewise, Colossians 3, verse 15 and 16, Paul tells ordinary Christians, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's not just the overseers who need to have the word of Christ dwelling in them richly, so they know what to say. You need to have the word of Christ dwelling in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. There's the word. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So now we got the idea. Um, again, he's, he, Paul goes out of his way to again address all the brothers. Brothers, all of you do this. First of all, admonish the unruly. Second, encourage the faint-hearted. Faint-hearted. Uh, these people are timid or discouraged maybe in danger of giving up in the Christian life, faint-hearted. This word, this Greek word, was used in the Greek Old Testament um, to talk about a lack of patience, lack of endurance, lack of confidence in the face of trials, particularly. Gary Shogren, his commentary, says, in this case, the people who need comfort are not just those feeding the blues. They're not just having a bad day. He says, they were disciples who underwent daily pounding from their families, environment, and workplaces to give up on Christ. I think that's a good perspective on it here. Remember, Paul is, says in this letter, he's writing to people who had already suffered persecution and were continuing to feel it, continuing to feel ostracized and disenfranchised from their families and their, their neighbors because they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God and, if, and they also acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah which didn't uh, make their Jewish neighbors happy either. <laughs> there were a lot of uh, trials for some people. Some people were having a very rough time and they, they were just they were tired, they were faint-hearted because of their trials. So encourage the faint-hearted, Paul says. Let me pause here and also say um, the same commentator, Gary Shogren, he, he writes something to pastors. But remember, Paul meant this for all church members as they obey his instructions here. But he's talking to pastors. He says, pastors should know who is discouraged, who is disorderly, who is weak. Then they should attend to people according to their various needs. For some, this runs counter to intuition. This isn't the way we'd naturally act. Since pastors often play to their personal strengths, no matter the situation. One pastor is by nature encouraging and ends up encouraging the disruptive when what they really need is a reprimand. Another rebukes easily and so tells the weak and discouraged to snap out of it. Paul is a superb model for pastors since in his letters he runs the gamut from gentle encouragement to firm rebuke depending on his audience. That's a good point. Paul is distinguishing everyone here isn't the same. They're not at the same place, at least. You have to understand where people are at to know how to minister to them. Are they being tempted to just to um, neglect instruction? Are they being tempted to go their own way and be disorderly? 
Are they tempted to give up because they're faint-hearted? Or next, are they weak in some way? Assist the weak is what he says next. Weak um, is a broad term, so I'm not sure exactly what Paul meant here in this context, uh, but probably something different than faint-hearted. But often this word for weak back then could be used um, about maybe someone who is poor and doesn't have enough. Maybe someone who is weak in the eyes of society. They don't have a high standing. They don't have connections. They don't have a lot of power. People like slaves or former slaves, maybe. And Gene Green again points out that in Greek society... Uh, Weakness was not considered a virtue at all. Um, The world of that day typically despised the weak. What's wrong with you? (laughs) Or, yeah, they're weak. um, We can't expect them to understand much or to... um, We can't expect as much of them because they're they're just... They're the weak ones. Uh, He says... Uh, one, one Greek writer harshly degrades the weak, saying that every faculty which is acquired by the uneducated and the weak is dangerous for them, as being apt to make them conceited and puffed up over it. <laughs> Don't give the weak too much education. They'll get a big head, is the idea. Weakness was despised. But he says the church's response to the weak was to be different. The brothers and sisters were to help such people, which meant that they should take an interest in them, pay attention to them, remain loyal to them. Those whom society walks over and puts down are lifted up and given support by the church. And when it says help the weak, that word help really means cling to them, hold fast to them, be devoted to them. It's a strong word, not just, you know, in a detached way, give them a little help and go on your way. It's really supporting them, really coming alongside them to help them. So the weak, you know, People here may be weak in various ways. Um, You remember where Paul talks about how not many of us are mighty or or noble according to the flesh. God's chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. That's the idea here. Um, Some of us particularly feel our weakness, maybe helplessness on our own. We, we We who have maybe more resources... Uh, maybe more time, more finances, uh, more standing, more connections. We need to look for those who need our support in the church, who need help. <laughs> it's a quite a broad concept. Who needs help here? Who ne- needs help, especially now, where they are in life? We need to be aware of that and attaching ourselves to them and honoring them. As Paul even talks elsewhere about honoring the weaker parts of the body, right? Next, he says, verse 14, suffer long with everyone. Be patient with everyone. That's the idea of long suffering. Putting up a long time (laughs) with everyone. And uh, again, this word for long suffering is so prominent in the New Testament because it's used a lot in the Greek Old Testament. Used especially of God. God, who is long suffering with his people who provoke him over and over, and yet he's long-suffering. Such an important word. God puts up long with us. 
And long-suffering, of course, is a Christian virtue. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And Robert Carr says here, as in 2 Timothy 4.2, patience is a virtue needed for those instructing or helping others because results may not be immediate. Jeff Wyma says, many Christians find it hard to accept help and especially discipline from fellow believers. The difficulty of correcting one's vices and spiritual flaws means that relapses into old habits are to be expected. In such situations, Paul exhorts the church not merely to admonish, encourage, and demonstrate devotion to troubled members, but also to do so in a patient, ongoing manner, uh, thereby mirroring the long-suffering manner in which God continues to deal graciously with them. I suppose this is obvious if you're having to deal with the unruly, those who are out of line, be patient with them. You'll also have to be patient with people who are faint-hearted, and you think, you think, I'm I'm encouraging the faint-hearted. Why aren't they encouraged? (laughs) Why aren't they getting it? Be patient. Um, Remember, God remembers your frame, knows that you are dust. You ought to remember what they're made of, and be patient. Keep working with them. Uh, Supporting the weak. Um, You may wonder sometimes, uh, don't they understand how they could get in a better situation? And maybe they're not getting that. You're trying to help them, but but they're still sinners and and they aren't perfect either. And sometimes they're a little frustrating to help (laughs) and to stick with. Be patient with them. Lastly, verse 15 Shun retaliation and pursue everyone's benefit. Shun retaliation and pursue everyone's benefit. Uh, Just to read the verse again, verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Sound like this morning's sermon? But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Or always seek that which is good for one another and for everyone. You're not focused on how you can pay back something bad that was done, but you're focused on how you can do what's beneficial for absolutely everyone, even those who have done wrong in the past. Now, we may not realize, as bad as our culture is, having rejected so much of God's law and gospel now, we may still not realize how much our culture still is affected by Christian ideas where we understand, a lot of people understand to some degree that vengeance is not good. Seeking your own vengeance isn't good. But in the world into which Paul wrote, um, they didn't think like that. Gene Green says, In the Roman world, just as in the Greek, avenging oneself for a wrong done was necessary. Because of the humiliation a Roman's prestige suffered if he showed himself reluctant to respond and retaliate for hostile acts. A Roman, governed by a harsh ethos, uh, simply could not afford to turn the other cheek and expect to maintain his position in society. The loss of social honor called for vengeance to be extracted in order to reestablish one's place in the community. Uh, Sometime before Paul's era, one Roman mother voiced the common and abiding belief 
In the necessity of vengeance, as she counseled her sons, this is what a Roman mother wrote to her sons. She said, you will say that it is beautiful to make revenge on your enemies. I consider revenge as important and glorious as anyone, but only if it can be attained without harm to the Republic. What's the point that I'm making? Well, in that world, of course you get vengeance. You have to get even. People won't respect you if you don't get even, was the idea. Make people respect you. Save face. Get even. Paul says, make sure none of you do that. <laughs> this is countercultural. Make sure none of you render evil for evil. That's not your place. That's not your job. Well, in conclusion, um, as we think about the fact that love and peace require all Christians to bless their shepherds and each other, we just need to ask, how are we doing? And I can't answer that for you. It's, it's a question for each of us individually. How are we doing? Are we sitting back and hoping that the pastor and our fellow church members will keep us happy with them? That's a natural thing for all of us to fall back into. Or are we proactive about maintaining those relationships and blessing those people, not just expecting them to bless us? That's the, that's the tone of what Paul says here, isn't it? Um, he says, it's your job, all of you in the church, to pursue these things. It's your job to be a blessing, to be an encouragement and a help, uh, to be an admonisher at times. <laughs> but how are we doing? I'll close with what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4 about the body of Christ, which is his church, and how it, uh, the health of the body is everyone's job in the body. Ephesians 4.10, He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, talking of Jesus, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, quoting the New King James here, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love. That sound like what Paul just said? Speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying, the building up of itself in love. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for, for giving us all such grace to be part of the body of Christ to be your children together, to be your heirs together and heirs together with Christ. Help us to walk worthy of the calling with which you have called us. And we've talked about a lot of things today, Lord, that we aren't very good at naturally. None of us are. 
But we thank you for the evidence of grace we've seen in our own congregation. Uh, All over the place, we could point to examples of people who are excelling at, at these things that Paul commands. Help us all to keep excelling more and to uh, urge each other on, prod each other along to love and good works together. Help me to be a better pastor. Help all of us to be better church members. We want to do this um, the way Jesus deserves us to do it because it's his body, it's his bride. Help us to be... um, honest before you as we look at our own hearts maybe even later today as we continue to reflect and see what am i doing well uh what what do i need to change help us to see clearly we don't see ourselves clearly at all in our sin it's natural for us to 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 not see clearly but lord please clear our vision because your word has been applied uh, to us and uh, it can open our eyes We thank you for the work of your spirit within us and among us, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.